And welcome to another episode of Muslim Money. We have a phenomenal guest here today. Oz, what's going on, man? How's things? Hey, man, how are you doing? It's uh, really great to be uh, on the show and like, well done oh, for this. You thank know? you, thank you. I, w- I was actually just thinking that um, you know, our tradition is based on stories. And um, you know, in our industry, which is based on the tradition, we don't hear enough stories. And I thought, Number one, what a fantastic thing to to do to bring stories to life, um, you know, by talking to different people. And I couldn't think of a better person in the industry. And I honestly mean this, other than you, to to to, to front that and do that. Oh, thanks, bro. No, 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 I really appreciate that. But it's storytelling is so important. Like, you know, we I think we forget that we're still quite a young industry, and it's shaped mm-hmm. by certain characters that probably a generation before us, in the sense that really drove it. But before I go into all that juicy stuff, if I can just uh, embarrass you a little bit by reading out your amazing bio, because I think for the listeners, you know, you got to hear who we're actually speaking to. So Oz is a recognized leader in the Islamic finance industry with over 15 years in the financial services industry. He has extensive experience in wholesale, retail across Europe, the GCC, and now Southeast Asia. And he's risen from analyst to chief executive, innovating and championing change across the Islamic finance industry. Oz has worked in corporate banking, retail banking. He's been the lead in debt capital markets, Sukuk issuances, Sukuk bond structuring. He was involved with many world firsts, including overseeing the world's first United Nations Sustainable Development Gold Sukuk issued by HSBC Amana. We nearly had the first Australian Sukuk, but um, on the to-do list. He's a pioneer and industry leader in banking for value-based intermediation. Hopefully, we'll chat a bit about that uh, in the episode. And he is a thought leader in sustainable business strategy. Oz was involved with the Malaysian Financial Services Joint Committee on Climate Change and Engagement and Capacity Building. And he is the treasurer of the Association of Islamic Banking and Financial Institutions, Malaysia, which we're hopefully you're organizing the GIF, Global Islamic Finance Forum which hopefully we'll catch up there as well, which I'm super excited about. Oz is one of the founders of a UK fintech company, MMOB, which specializes in open banking and open finance technology infrastructure. Oz has an MBA with distinction from the London Business School Executive Program. He has certificates in sustainability from Harvard Business School and London Business School. And to top it off, he's got a master's in economics, finance and management from the University of Bristol and a bachelor's in information management from the University College of London. Sorry, bro. I'm just, I have to say, I have to say all this. And in 2018, he won the Asset AAA Award for the Islamic Banker of the Year for the whole industry. Prior to this, he was the head of Islamic Treasury at the Saudi British Bank. He was the head of capital financing and financial institutions at Dukhan Bank and the former CEO of HSBC Amana Malaysia, and is currently the CEO of Araji Bank Malaysia. Oz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to stop blushing because uh, when people read that out, I feel kind of embarrassed. And, right, that, um, that, you know, as, as accidents happen, and plenty have happened to me, so uh, I've been fortunate. But mashallah, man, that's such a phenomenal bio, and, and there's so much stuff in there. But I, I want to go back to that where it all started. I want to go back to you, Rahan. Rahan, who's your brother, who's a a senior, a, a, an industry leader in his own right. And I want to go back to to where it all began. You know, wh- where are you guys from? Your upbringing, and um, yeah, all of that. So um, 
apparently, not that I remember it, I was born in Nigeria, of all places. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So um, my father was an. No, so I was born in Zaria. Right. Um, and uh, so m- my father was an, an expat, uh, you know, kind of uh, worker, similar to, to me, because it runs in the family and my brother, and brother, both my brothers, actually. And um, back then in the 70s, late 70s, I was, I was born in 1980, um, it was the place to go uh, for expats uh, back then. And so, but I, but I moved to the UK when I was one. My father had prior to uh, Nigeria moved to the UK decades before. Um, so he moved back there uh, because things, you know, didn't work out so well at that time. Uh, there was a, in Nigeria and the world economy. We talk about the 80s, uh, what happened in the early 80s. So I grew up in East London when it was far less um, bohemian and, you know, desirable <laughs> as it is today. We're talking about post-Cray, um, yeah. you know, kind of East London. Uh, a rough it was a pretty, pretty, pretty rough back in, back in those days. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, coming from an like kind of Asian background, mm. uh, parents from the Indian subcontinent, um, you know, you're not the biggest, mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And and the law of the streets, the law of the jungle yeah. is what prevailed, Yeah, you know. And, you know, uh, people will be familiar with there's certain streets you go down and there's certain streets you don't to get to where you want to go. And that's where we grew up. And, and, and uh, th- there was a lot of things that I realized growing up influenced decisions later in life. So, you know, in communities, you had aunties and uncles before you even knew what biological aunties and uncles were. Um, And, you know, especially when you're away from wherever your parents are from originally. And the supervision supervision network that the aunties have. Right, right, exactly. And you saw a lot of these um, friends and aunties and uncles move Mm. from where we were in East London, and then we would go to visit them. And they were very nice areas, and all their kids are going to schools where you wear blazers and not jumpers. And you started to understand this idea of catchment areas for schools and, you know, being able to move to getting a house there, it can go to better schools. And, and for me, and for many people, education was a way out of East London. And, you know, and, and that's what my parents were both highly educated mm. and just, so, you know, we're not the biggest in the world. We're not going to be sports folks, you know, so education is the way out. And um, wouldn't it be great to go to these places? And we couldn't go because my parents couldn't buy a house. And later on, I'd, I'd realize that's because they didn't have Sharia compliant offerings to buy a house. My parents right. refused to take yeah. a conventional uh, a mortgage. And so that was that kind of one part of uh, something that was formulative, but it was really about using education to get out. And the parents you know, did their best to move us into different schools that would give us that better chance. We started off in, well, I started off, and as my brothers did, in probably one of the worst schools in the country wow. back then. Wow. <laughs> because it, yeah, we, it, because it was, we were living in the worst borough. One of yeah. them, like, in the bottom three, there was like Tower Hamlets. I was in Newham, and there was like, I think, Moss Side. I think it was yeah. Moss Side, uh, Tower Hamlets, Moss Side, and then Newham, if you're counting up from the bottom. And the school that we went to was one of the worst from the borough. Wow. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, oh, fascinating um, story. And and all, all your your brothers ended up in financial services, or or um, like, so, how many uh, how many in the family were there? Was it just two elder brothers? Oh, okay. So the the, the three boys. 
Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and we, um, uh, my eldest is in technology, it works in financial services and technology, but so we've had all had something to do with financial mm. services, um, in some way, and um, yeah, so we we managed to go to other schools. I went to a school that was also what was called a comprehensive school, that's the typical states, the schools that are um, free to go to, and um. You know, that, that was very, how can I put it? It was character forming from two different aspects. Number one, I was one of the only colored people in the school and one of, wow. the, one of the only Muslims in the school. Mm. And then number two was I got myself to a level where I was near in the, whatever, the top of the class type thing, you know, people top of the class. And then you go into this new school and then you're just not. Mm. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? So, so and then it, you're it, like, is it kind of like a selective school, is it? You, you do kind of well and then you kind of get into these performance schools, I guess, or all the bright kids so, would, would go to it. No, that's not what happened. What ended up happening was, is that we had to move with an, in with an auntie mm. who is in an area yeah, um, in the where catchment. The, the schools are better. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 So, so what had happened was that that area had better schools, but mm. also a comprehensive school. And, you know, this whole thing of, I need to be better to, because I need to get out of East London ultimately. Mm. So, so although, you know, we were kind of whatever in the week with this auntie or whatever it was. So, so there was a lot of catching up to do. And then I remember just finishing GCSEs and history repeats itself because then I managed to get into a grammar school, which is selected to do mm. A-levels. And again, I find myself right at the bottom wow. and having to, having to build up. And um, that was difficult, um, very difficult because it was much, that jump was much harder Instead of two years, it took me three years to do A-levels. I felt like I'd failed. Um, wow. And then I had to deal with failure. Mm. Um, and uh, it was hard then, but I was really grateful that I went through it because um, something interesting happened at university. And then what also happened is my father passed away at the same time. So there's oh, this huge oh amount God, of adversity geez, that was occurring. And you just still have it in this head. I have to study mm. to get, do you know what I mean? And that's the thing that's driving you, you know, mm. it, it ends up being very few things that really pushes. And I remember the day I got the offer from UCL and I, I, I mean, it was, it was so interesting because I had got the offer before my father passed away and he had so, seen it. And I remember when he had passed away, he, um, he always had this little briefcase in his bedroom and we weren't ever allowed to go in it but obviously we did <laughs> we all knew what was inside we always go in it and i remember after he passed away uh i looked in that briefcase and he actually had my offer letter for oh, ucl so wow. yeah so that was um but wow. what was really interesting in the transition to ucl is i found myself like oh my god is this ever like i've just been to a grammar school i've got to be some and you were just with 55% state school kids, private school kids. Wow. And again, you're just effectively at the bottom again, uh, effectively. And, but the, there's one big difference now. These kids had never seen failure. And I had. Wow. And yeah. I remember the first tutorial we had, mm. everyone sitting around the table, right? And they hand it over and everyone's got C's and D's. Mm. And I was like celebrating. I was like, <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I knew that you start with C's and D's and work your ways up to yeah. work your way up to A's, yeah. right? That's how it works. But a lot of the and, grammar kids must have it must have been a big hit to their ego, pretty yeah. much. 
private school mm. grammar school kids and state states uh, you know kind of the regular comprehensive school kids but in the really great catchment mm. areas that might as well be private schools and it was a big hit for them and i could see their face i remember the children normally left like six people and then like just basically i worked my way up i managed to you know learn from people you know you're supposed to do an internship in this year you're supposed mm. to do this and so on so it was tough because i had to work during the same time i yeah. had to pretty much work uh, um every all the, the weekends and in the week when i could wow. um and i was very blessed uh there's a company sainsbury's and they had a head office i wasn't like doing cashier i was actually in the head office doing some like uh, what's called supply chain management and so it was kind um, of like, a, like already a foot in the door in, in the corporate world i guess like um, a, a, a corporate-ish job Right. So it helped me later because I understood the corporate environment. Mm. So when I actually went in, because a lot of people working, understandably, if they had to work, many of them didn't, but if they if they had to work, they'd be working in a, you know, kind of regular retail front, you know, kind of high street type of stuff. I, I had this experience in supply chain management. It was mm. an important role. Uh, they realized I was good at PowerPoint and Excel. So I'd always get the very senior management in the, I'd, I'd produce their reports. Um, and I always knew the little tricks to make them look better. So they, but then more and more senior managers asked me to produce their reports um, and stuff like that. So that, that I didn't realize the impact that would have later on in my career. At the time, I was just like, I, I need money to get through university. Mm. And like, I was just, you know, you know, being able to make it each month. And uh, I remember, I, I've got, I said, I've got this. Like, I remember doing an internship in a, in a bank, it was Deutsche Bank. And I'd done that at the right time. And I was like, I've got this. I'm going to get a good job. And subhanAllah, dot-com crash happens. Oof. no one's hiring yeah and i'm just like what am i gonna do yeah and this was just um, as you graduated yeah yeah yeah, yeah so it's like the, i graduated in 2002 and 2001 yeah that's right yep gosh so i'm just like okay what do i do so by now i've got this hustle kind of and i find out that there's and the other thing i've worked out during that milk round period is i was doing this thing information management which i thought was super relevant but people hadn't really accepted the value of it yet mm. it helped me later fast forward to mmob and stuff and stuff we're doing here today but back then it wasn't and i was like man you know i've got to get in i've got to position myself really well in order to get some of the roles internships are one thing the full-time roles and i realized when i did the internship people were doing economics law da, 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 you know engineering and so on and so forth so i found this degree in um that was kind of like almost a conversion you have to do a bit of a conversion and do the degree which was um uh, in Bristol University, and it was a one-year course, and I was thought, well, if I do this, um, then maybe things will recover, and I'll get a job. And it just so happens, Hanalo, things did recover, and um, you know, I was able to get, uh, I was able to go into what I wanted to do. You know, the typical milk crown roles. Uh, but what was again, it was history repeating itself because even though I had now graduated from UCL and I did well. Um, what ended up happening is I'm now fucking doing economics and finance and the management side I was all right with. Mm. And we've done a little bit of economics and finance in the degree at UCL, but not a lot. So again, it was that whole learning from the bottom and coming up. So, so with the, um, with the Bristol university, that was like, I would have thought you would have learned that in, in UCL or all that kind of stuff. Or was it? Yeah. So UCL, the information management, what we had covered was computer science mm. There was a part on information sciences, which I think is actually really interesting and relevant. It's, 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 it's the bedrock of what we have with data and all this stuff now. And also just management, in which we did accounting and management and some other stuff. Right. But when you go to um, 
a social science from a management school to a social sciences faculty faculty it's another level. They yeah 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 i mean we're talking about you know your stochastics have to yeah. be really good your macro microeconomics has to be good mm. your finance stuff is real you know uh, so that was for me although we had some understanding of that it was again going into a lot of the people going into it had engineering economics and so on and so forth i think i was the only one with a tech background or like mixed computer science with other stuff background um that went in there so it, it became this this kind of <laughs> this trend uh, but by then you habitue habituate yourself in how you navigate that mm. and i didn't realize that at the time but yeah. i had uh, you know i did later but it, I did all right. It sounds like that, that that hustle, you know, just from the get go. Yeah. Can, can I just go back a little bit in terms yeah. of the schooling and then going? So you mentioned that you're only Muslim in, in the school. Was racism an issue? And like, was it difficult to manage that? Because I find that you know, yeah. even in Australia, a lot of people that go to other other schools, there's a lot of privilege and just cultural capital, cultural agency that people are yeah. able to navigate these things a lot easier than a lot of minority community members so was that an issue or you you didn't really find that it was more it was more just everyone was hustling no no i mean when i went to the school where i was the one of the only ethnic minorities and one of the only muslims and certainly uh, a muslim that um had a more traditional type of practice it was it was difficult in that you know what i remember of the school um and interactions and there were some good teachers was a different treatment. I'll give you examples. I'll give you a couple of examples that I remember if I, if I think back. Um, I recall being in what's called craft design technology, a CDT class, very noisy in there. One of my friends asks me to get the teacher because he's struggling with something. So I go over to the teacher and I tap them and he looks at me and then I point over. This is noisy. The teacher absolutely blasted me like no other person I have ever seen him blast. Jeez. And not just, he used to do it outside. It was inside the room. Mm. Who are you to point to me? And like, I remember that time, it was the first time in school that I think I was, you know, I cried and I, they had this stock cup and it was near the end of the lesson. Mm. And I remember just going to stock cup, trying to compose myself and then come out. And you could, tell by the look on everybody's face that that was completely and at the time i was known to be one of the the good kids mm. i wasn't do you know what i mean not a troublemaker like you yeah. no no no, no. I wasn't yeah. and so um i remember that i remember another incident where it's the end of school and do you know you throw eggs and flour yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. i didn't bring any eggs and flour with me and one of my friends was ahead of me and there were people throwing eggs in 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 eye shop mm. and there was some flour and a new flour dust off I and mean, you want to be part of it and there was some flour that was already on the floor that had that was in students packet half of it i picked it up and threw it on my friend's pack right and i remember two teachers and they were behind i didn't realize that they were so close behind and in in eye shot are people throwing eggs mm. and the teacher literally says blasts me and then like really badly and says um we can take you back to the school and cancel your gcse's gosh jeez yeah. And I thought maybe that was how everybody got treated. But as I looked back on it and reflected, it was basically, I realized that these incidents were completely unreasonable. Mm. And it was, it was for me, um, I remember the first teacher 
can't remember his name as well. So Mr. Spurdle, I think his name was. I remember later on in the same year, he gave a <laughs> he gave an assembly on how um uh, verbal and mental bullying can be worse than physical bullying. And so I mean and for it to come from a teacher as well, you know, that must have been yeah. such a impactful like such a heavy thing to as as a kid. So so it was it, it was and it was I remember there was one kid in school. He wasn't he was he was very liberal, should we say. He was he was Turkish. And um, we would sit together sometimes in assembly, especially when they were doing it's a church of England school, I guess, especially when they were doing like um, uh, the hymns and so on and so forth. And typically, um, like for me, I'd sometimes sing them, I sometimes wouldn't, or most students would do that. And then we were sitting together once and we were not singing. And one of the teachers, she was the head of the year, walked up and said, sing the hymn. And then it was like, he refused. And then I kind of, didn't you kind of move your lips a little bit or something? I think ejected from the assembly. No, I remember. So these were the yeah, yeah. So these were and, the types uh, of things. It was that, this is this is a, was it a Christian school or was it was it a, a a state school or? I mean, they I guess they were Church of England, but but they weren't per se like a full I, Christian I school. It was, uh, it, was, it was it was it wasn't no no it wasn't a religious school. No, yeah yeah yeah. Gosh yeah. So I remember that was the um, but I remember it was good in the. We used to have RE lessons, mm. and as the you know, the only Muslim in the class, uh, I'd certainly have a and, and you know because you have a bit of an education. Um, there were a lot of things that I uh, w- we had lots of discussions with the teacher, and also to be honest, learned uh, a lot about the Gospels, which I found mm. super interesting, and that and that helped me a lot because um, in in reading and learning about the Gospels, um, particularly the Gospels, I'm not talking about the Paulian work. I'm talking about just the Gospels, mm. and particularly the early Gospels that have, you know, I think it's John that has the very highest Christology, mm. right? But in the earliest uh, three Gospels, they're very similar if you read them. They're very similar, all of them, but what they tend to have an increase in Christology. And John is, and that's why John is typically referenced most. I was like, like, there's nothing in here that contradicts Islam. Mm. Yeah. Like, nothing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, yeah, little things I picked up was like, I can count the number of times of when Maryam uh, uh, is mentioned. Yeah. And then I can, then I used to say, do you know how many times they mentioned in the Quran? And then, and then people would say, uh, oh, how many times? I said, I don't know, but there's a whole chapter with her name. In it. <laughs> so it was good from that perspective as well. Um, and they were quite open to, to the debate. They enjoyed it. Were you into Ahmad Didat videos at the time? No, no, that came later for me. Um, but I was the, the RE teacher. I think enjoyed it. I think most mm. of the people in RE classes they didn't they didn't typically enjoy the class. So a lot of people switched off anyway. Yeah. Um, so I think the teacher enjoyed the fact I was in the class because I had a bit of something to talk about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, fast forward a bit to you know when you were going for those early positions, was was Islamic financing. Uh, uh, did you just want to get into the industry, get a bit of experience, get that internship, or was Islamic financing kind of a, a, a driver for you at that stage? No, I mean I'll be honest. Um, there, there was a link that was made later with young, young growing life, which I'll get onto, but it wasn't. It was just I just wanted to get out. Mm. That, that's the truth. I mean, you know, I was just being honest. I, I just wanted to get out of East London, and I didn't want that life. 
and it was but it's different now but it was it, it was dangerous and i think some of the hustle also comes from just uh you know like i say when i was at school benefits of uh of DC, i've talked about the difficulties but the air, air cadets walked around and said who wants to recruit to be in the air cadets i was there for five years um it and believe me there was racism there as well <laughs> definitely uh and um uh, but the uh and, and i experienced it as a direct as i mentioned uh before um but at the same time i learned that there was a lot of people who had compassion that would recognize that and um that gives you hope as it was with the children in the class as it was with some of the other cadets and officers mm. who had noticed things happening um and and also um you know being in the air cadets allowed me to uh, you know, when you even you get a diverse group of people and you're one, you know, you're when you're on a Air Force base and you're supposed to be doing, you know, this routine and regimen and you're supposed to be doing assault courses. Uh, a lot of that goes away. <laughs> you know, it goes away. Mm. People don't get it. We, we just get things done. Mm. Uh, you know, really proud that one of our teams, you know, we we, we, we conquered an assault course together. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of that and, and that and those those hustle that hustle mentality i think comes from one going through a lot of adversity but the strengths that you get in doing things like the air cadets and all of that type of stuff uh keeps you uh keeps you quite firm but yeah i wasn't thinking about going into islamic financing i just wanted to get a good job in a good in, in a good company and that that's what happened i got picked up mm. uh, with accenture but uh, we, we, so that, with air yeah. cadets that was during your uni days no. and Oh, that, yeah. So you actually Younger. went into the air cadets, uh, like after uni? 18. No, no, before. Oh, oh, thirteen to eighteen. Right, right. Gotcha. Yeah. I, and again, I was the only coloured person in the squadron because wow. I, was in, I was in the from that area, and yeah. um, uh, only coloured person, only Muslim. And typically, when I went on bases and stuff like that, it would be it would be similar. But what, what, um, what made you do that? Out of curiosity, like it's it's, it's an interesting thinking, path for a you know a, a young Muslim, I guess. So um, I suppose the reason was that one day came and they presented, the guy was in this nice uniform and they showed this picture of these camps that you go to and it, and you could do lots of fun. They'll teach you how to fly and like mm. shoot guns and, uh, you know, do assault courses. And um, it just seemed like adventure, I mm. think. Uh, one of my, uh, my, my uh, family, uh, you know, my uh, family, uh, extended family, um, a lot of them are, we're in the military uh so um i just found it super interesting well my, my my mother's eldest brother was a very senior person in the pakistani air force right. uh, one of my second cousins you know ran a naval base in pakistan and wow. uh, one of my cousin one of my um uncles was in the i think in the british either navy or army it, it, those it things started, the, it looked like adventure and i went yeah yeah interesting Getting into your first role led to the transition into Islamic financing. Was it that you initiated, or it was just an opportunity yeah, it, that came up? Or I'll, I'll give you the run up. So uh, the run up is a bit ahead of when that decision is actually made. So I joined Accenture, and I really thought I had uh, like really uh, made it. Um, <laughs> and I realised then that there was a, a lot of um, polished people. <laughs> and then it was like kind of anyway. I managed to get onto a project. Um, I'll drop the name. It was on the London Stock Exchange, and I suddenly realised that. And this was after a big amount of training. The training was great. Ra ra ra. And we got into the actual job, and 
It's super interesting. The re- the job that we got was off of the back of my um, uh, technology right. <laughs> background, yeah. and not not actually anyway. Uh, which was, but, but, but yeah, uh, so what happened was was that um, we got onto a project, and very quickly I realised that if you ain't going out drinking with people, mm. you ain't in the team. Yeah, yeah, and that was clear. Yeah. And so, but I wouldn't do that. I mean, I would pop in and just kind of you know spend a little bit of time and leave. Yeah, that, that, that that's what I would do. And I realized that I was becoming an outsider and I didn't feel the confidence of asking them for a prayer area. Mm. I didn't feel the confidence. So what happened was, is that we were obviously on the client site and I couldn't bring a prayer mat in because that would have been too obvious. Right. And you have to remember now that 9-11 has happened. Yeah. We're talking about, well, we're talking now about, I mean, this is 2005, uh, four or four or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't bring it. So what I did is that I bought a bag in, and in that bag was a bed sheet. And then I then went around the London Stock Exchange uh, to find somewhere that was quite, and I found this really quiet wing for some reason, and there was a janitor's cupboard. It was filthy. Subhanallah, the space was so small on the ground, but it pointed directly to the Qibla. <laughs> <laughs> so I left this plastic bag with this, it's a sheet. So I yeah. think I can't remember why or just, you know, a little bit ago. Off, I, I left this sheet there and then I would go in a break and then basically go and pray there. But the, the issue was, was that it was completely pitch black. Mm. So when the door closes, pitch black. Um, so that's what I was doing. And then I ended up getting kicked off the project. And uh, I, it, like, it was mind because, because of that, you, you reckon? No, 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 oh, no, no, not because of that. Because I was I mean, thinking, no man, this guy goes and goes into that little room with a little bag. <laughs> what is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, no, it wasn't because of that. No one knew. Like, right. no one knew. Yeah, 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 so yeah, what yeah. happened was, is that I ended up, um, I thought I was doing a good job. I really yeah. was. And then they were like, no, it's not working out. Gosh. Like, so, anyway, so they put me on the bench, which is, like, a consulting term for... Um, like you're being not on the being bench. charged. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is not good. And then the day, first day I was on the bench, subhanAllah, someone picks me up and says, this person needs an analyst. And it just so happens that they're in the most prestigious part of Accenture, which is mm. called Strategy and Business Architecture. I then find out from the senior managers, it's with one of the ones that everybody wants to work for, but he never takes anybody. And he works for the partner that everybody wants to work for. The gentleman's names, incredible people, both of them, David Allen and Julian Scan. These people, their the qualities about how they lead are still with me today. I learned so much wow. from them. And um, then I find out, and I'm not making this up. I find out after I find that out, I find out that on the floor below, as in, in entire meeting room that is converted to a multi-faith prayer room. No way. I swear to God. So wow. I've gone from the janitor's closet <laughs> to basically, and, I, and, and, and this, 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 this becomes a theme. So subhanAllah, um, it's that point around, if, Allah, if you take one step towards Allah, yeah, you take 10 steps towards you. Yeah, 100%. And I lived that. I lived that. And there, I had no idea. So they had this multi-faith prayer room. So that was, um, and then what ended up happening, just fast forwarding a bit, there was uh, this guy, David Allen. I mean, he was just fantastic. He said, you can do a lot more. Mm. And he encouraged me 
to apply for this program, which was called the International Manager Program at HSBC. It was then a very prestigious program. Mm. At the time, the group had two, three hundred thousand employees. There were like four hundred international managers. Right, mm. it's super. I remember the program. I didn't even bother applying for it when I was doing milk. I was like, I'm never going to get this. And he gave me that confidence uh, to apply, and I applied and I got it. And then th- this is <laughs> this is slightly interesting. In between starting there i said look there's one thing i don't know how to do which is i don't i don't know arabic during the time at accenture i met some people and again this they, they had a muslim network and so on and so forth so i ended up um uh, going to uh syria for three months and this is pre-war syria this is where everybody goes to to learn arabic because mm. it's cheap right yeah, yeah. and uh so just for context uh and uh so i spent some time there and then i was like Oh my God, I'm just about to join one of the biggest banks in the world. And now I fully understand the concept of riba in its entirety. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's, and it's important. Yeah. Yes, I understood it from my parents because yeah. we're not taking riba in yeah, order yeah, to yeah, get yeah. a house. But now I'm just like, oh, okay. It, it, it kind of hit you. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It hit me. But then I thought to myself, um, I researched a bit and they had this, this HSBC Amana. Mm. So when I got to, um, got to work. Now I'm not in the Amana stream. I'm on the international manager stream. And when I got there, um, I just kind of said, look, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to do anything that you want. Uh, but I, <laughs> I this is going to sound funny, but it's like, I, I did write, I said, but I, I, I prefer not to do anything related to credit. <laughs> <laughs> in one of the largest banks in the world. Banks in the world. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm, I, I was like, what you, and bro, you just started. I mean, I could, yeah, I don't know what And so, um, and then I said, look, they've got this HBC Amana bit. Um, and so, what ended up happening, we, we come in on our first day, and I'm super excited about going somewhere international. Like, I'm like, well, you know, I've, I've, it'd be cool. I mean, we've heard about where all the places people go and so on and so forth. I remember there's four people who joined with me. And they're reeling off where they're going. So one of the guys was staying in London to do a job that he had been curated for him. I was like, bloody hell, that's amazing. Mm. Just could join the bank. Someone from Canada was going to Jersey. Someone from Corsica was going to Canada. Someone from Canada was going to uh, Brazil. And I was last. I was like, I can't wait. And they said, Oz, you've got a very interesting assignment in Sheffield. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like... I was hoping for something a bit more international, yeah. and it was—it um, wasn't in credit; it was in procurement. Right, so, um, which you had a bit of experience good. with previously. Yeah, I had a bit with the supply chain bit, but also I got—I learned a lot from contracts. But it was in Sheffield, mm. and I remember going to Sheffield, and um, I got to Sheffield, and uh, I asked if I could use one of the meeting rooms for prayer mm. that was construed as I wanted to convert it into a prayer room. <laughs> right? And then the next thing I know, the next week HR from the company I've just joined has taken the train up to come and see me. Wow. Right. Right. So again, it's this whole, as in it's a problem or, or as in yeah, yeah, how, yeah. how could we, Oh, right. He's demanding a prayer room. I was oh. like, no, I just was like making sure it was okay. I could, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just need 10 minutes. We're good. Yeah, yeah just so people know, and then maybe we could book the room and this. Yeah. Anyway, so they were like, oh, there's a mosque here. And, a mosque. and then I said, listen, I found a space downstairs, which was in the basement. 
the dirty basement with boxes and the same sheet that I had mm. in the bag from Accenture I had with me. And then I left it there, and that's how it's going. Well, I was there for 15 months, and, or 12, 15 months, and they said, we're sending you to Hong Kong. I was like, oh, well, this sounds really interesting. Mm. One month before I was supposed to go to Hong Kong, they said it's changed to Saudi Arabia. Wow. And then uh, I was one of the first junior people to go to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was never on the agenda. Yeah. Because yeah. And, 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 and this agenda. was that the JV, or, or it was actual HSBC yeah. at the time. Saudi British Bank, which is a JV. And just for context, in that 15 months, I had reached out to Iqbal Khan yeah, and yeah, said, yeah. I'm an IM, I'd love to do stuff in Amana. Mm. This, is a, this is a true story. And then he was gracious and put me in touch with their HR. The two HRs were talking. Something didn't happen. And eventually I asked him, what happened with that? And my HR had turned around and said that they said that you were too expensive because the international program, they were well looked after. Mm. And I was really disappointed. Um, I was like, oh, well, maybe I can't work in Amana. But then, subhanAllah, I get um, to Saudi. Now, the person who gave me the job in Saudi, his name is John Coverdale. <laughs> He's a devout Christian. Right. <laughs> and he said, there's this kid that wants to do Islamic banking. Let's give him an opportunity here. He heard about it. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was interesting. So a lot of people associate my start with Islamic finance. Well, it's got nothing to do with it. So I'm quite the opposite. He actually said no. <laughs> but, wow. Uh, yeah. Isn't it interesting? So, so it's, it's almost as if you've had, you know, non-Muslim mentors in a sense, or that could see that potential, see that kind of passion and that they've kind of, you know, opened doors and tried to yeah. really help you in your career. Yeah, and, and don't, don't get me wrong. After that point, it was the Javed Ahmed, the Razi Fakis, the Mukhtar Hussein in a yeah. very big way. He plays a very big role. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, Hissam Kamal, uh, Muhammad Farhan, lots of names. Yeah. Um, up until that point, you're absolutely right. It was, you know, it was non-Muslim mentors, effectively. And the amazing story of taking one step towards Allah, subhanahu mm. wa ta'ala, taking 10 steps towards you and being patient happened again. What happened was, not only did my sudden posting change, it was it was it used to be a Thursday, Friday weekend there. Thursday, Friday in Saudi used to be Thursday, Friday weekend. But there was a there was a requirement by the group that you had to travel the day before you started to start straight away. So I traveled, I arrived, it was near my birthday, I remember in 2007, I can't remember exactly. I was there on a, I think it was Saturday, I started work. Between Saturday and Wednesday, Someone bought me an ihram. I just said I'd like to visit Mecca. Someone bought me an ihram. Someone came and bought me books and taught me exactly how to do Umrah. His name's Khalid Al-Akil. The guy who bought me the ihram, I believe, was Sarvar Faki, which is Rani Faki's brother. Musa Al-Jetli and Muhammad al-Sheikh, these are two people that arranged my hotels and my flights. I ended up landing in... Riyadh on the Friday and on the I think it was the Wednesday or the Thursday I landed in Mecca wow and I didn't know this at the time that and this used to happen it's not happens anymore is that after Hajj there's a period where nobody's allowed to go other than people from the GCC yeah. and it was slap bang in the middle of that period mm. after all of the uh, uh, pilgrims had left yep I swear to God, uh, for people who know, uh, I think Bab Fahad, I think it is, uh, from, it was close to the Hilton and the Intercontinental, I walked that entire stretch into the Haram and I only passed cleaners. So, only passed what? Cleaners. Ah, oh, right. That's it. Wow. And I, inside, 
there was less than a hundred people making tawaf. You're kidding me. No, no. So I, I made this umrah, which I thought was, that's how it always yeah. is. And uh, <laughs> you're supposed to touch Hajar yeah. Yemeni. You're supposed to kiss the right first yeah. and then touch Hajar Yemeni. And I did that all yeah. right. Oh, this is, this is pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, there was a little bit pushing her around the rock. And then I did, and, and I completed it. And I remember going back and, uh, and thinking that all of those days, um, so what I would do is I, I, would, I would pray in the basement. There, was, there happened to be a toilet that had this kind of thing that looked like a shower. Mm. And before Juma, I would go there, it was freezing cold, mm. and I'd mm. quickly take some type of shower before I went into Juma to the, to, to the, to the uh, center that was nearby. And all of that, um, I realized afterwards, after 15 months, was number one, within one week, I was in Mecca making Umrah for the first time. And the second thing is where they used to pray in the office where they used, to, they used to roll out mats in the office for people to pray, was directly behind my seat. Mm. And, and, and that was, uh, so that was the thing that, and anyway, from there, that's when, um, you know, my Islamic finance journey took off in a really big way. And yeah. that's where, you know, Saudi was the place yeah. I, I learned, you know. You know, subhanAllah, it's, it's such a, it, it's almost as if, you know, as you mentioned, you do that, those few bits of hardship and you really struggle and then, these doors just open, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yeah. just kind of opens it up and then, uh, and then things really kind of go from there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to pause there. I hope you enjoyed listening to Oz's journey into Islamic financing. In the next episode, we're going to be chatting to Oz and learning about his rapid rise within HSBC to becoming one of the youngest CEOs HSBC has ever had and one of the youngest CEOs in Malaysia. I hope you can join us for that. It's going to be as interesting as his rise into Islamic financing. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please don't forget to give us a rating, hit us up with a comment and share with your friends. Looking forward to catching you in the next episode and we'll catch you next time. Assalamu alaikum.